Well, good morning. We prayed this morning in our prayer time here at the school. Um, at 8 o'clock we meet for prayer. If you want to come, you're certainly welcome to come and participate. And we prayed that the Spirit of God would move. We had no idea that it would result in the pushing over of our pipe and drape. But um, all is well. For those who came in a little bit late, we were singing, and the pipe and drape, just almost all of it fell down. That's, that's pretty exciting. Um, and uh, it's not really. But we also worked so hard on getting these nice front displays, and that one fell. And this one's crooked, and it's just like, okay, that's fine. The church goes on, right? The service will continue because God is a whole lot bigger than a bunch of pipe and drape and some signs. If this is your first time with us, man, I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, it is it, it just uh, is humbling week after week as we see more and more people beginning to call Life Journey Church their home. And uh, if, if you're new for the first time and you want more information about who we are, what we're doing, and when we dismiss here in a little bit, and before you leave, just grab us. We want to talk to you about what our church is all about, what we stand for, what we believe in, and how we believe God has called us here for the purpose of spreading his fame uh, which was right over there, to the, our neighbors and the nations, right? So have you ever played that game uh, where somebody would say a word and then you had to say the very first thing that came into your mind, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so it's like if somebody said the word ring, you know, the first thing that comes into your mind might be, you know, wedding, right? If you've recently, you know, talked to somebody about a wedding or you might think of like, you know, uh, you know somebody says ring and you think of the word toss, you know, because you're... Is playing ring toss, or if you're hungry, you might think of the word, you know, onion, you know, onion rings. And if you're just really hungry, if you don't like onion rings, you might just think of the word waffle. But just because you like waffles, not because it has anything to do with rings, uh, or, or with, uh, yeah, with rings. But what is the word that comes to your mind, to each of our minds, when we think of the word, when we ponder the word, when you hear the word family, all right? What's the first thought that kind of comes? You know, joy, peace. Uh, love, uh, circus, right? Uh, complicated, crazy Uncle Ted. Right? I, I, don't, I don't care who you are. Right? Each one of us in our families, we have a crazy Uncle Ted, okay? And there's people laughing and smiling at each other and nudging you because you have a crazy Uncle Ted. In our family, our crazy Uncle Ted is my mom's dad, all right, my granddad. He is, and my wife's laughing because she knows this is true. And if you're listening, Papa, I love you. But crazy Uncle Ted, you know, I don't have time to tell you about, you know, how crazy uh, he is. But, but let, let's just say that, you know, reality shows that they, they find some dysfunctional family and they follow them for a while, right? I don't know how my granddad got passed up on that, okay? His solution to fixing problems is just, is just amazing. We were at one time uh, snow, iced in at his house. He lived in the, the mountains of western Arkansas. And literally eight inches of ice covered everything. I mean, you couldn't even, the car, it was just a big covering of, of ice. It was really pretty, but try to get off of a mountain, right, with eight inches of ice. So we were iced in for a week further than the week that we were already there with crazy uncle, you know, grandpa. And so his solution to make sure that the ice-laden uh, branches did not fall on the ice-laden um, power lines, his solution involved a double-barrel 12-gauge shotgun, uh, half a dozen shells, and his overalls, okay? So I'll just, I can't go into the whole story, but I'll just say that the ice served as a great first aid tool uh, for 
his head that he cracked open, okay? Because it was just two or three steps out into the porch, and like a cartoon, I, I mean, I remember it, like, in, in my mind, his feet slipped up, and they were, like, parallel with his eyes for a second. You know, like in cartoons, you know, like they run off the edge of the mountain, and then they realize that, hey, I'm on the edge of, you know, and then they fall. It was like that. He was, like, parallel for, like, a couple, like a split second, and then he just crashed his head onto the back, uh, on the back of his head onto the ice. I mean, let, let's face it. No matter who you are, we all have certain family members that we're, just, that we're just not thrilled to be with. We're just not thrilled to be around. I mean, we schedule our gatherings with families. Or when we show up and when we leave, we calculate that based on when another family member is going to be there and when they're going to leave. Now, don't look at me all spiritual because you do it as well as I do. And if you don't do it, you wish you could do it, okay? It's just the way it is. It's family. All right, family is messy. My family's messy. Your family's messy. But you know what? We might avoid some of these people in our family like they had the plague, but we will do anything to help them because it's family. It's the way it works. Within reason, we would do anything for our family. I can honestly say that I would gladly give my life for my wife and for my daughter and for our soon-to-be-born son in a heartbeat, gladly, because they're my family. Even if, okay, this is hypothetical, even if April and I were in the car and we got into one of those yelling, throw-down fights, you know the kind I'm talking about, right? Now, this is hypothetical, all right? Even if we got into one of those throw-down fights where I want to strangle her myself and we step out of the car and a mugger comes by to do her harm, you better believe that this 300-pound frame is getting moved into action pretty quick, and I'm going to end that threat in a heartbeat, right? Because no matter how much tension or stress there is between me and my wife, I'm going to give my life for her. She's family. She's my wife. She's my bride. And no matter how frustrating you are or I am with our children, even if they're teenage children plucking your every last nerve, you know as well as I do that you would give your life for them because they're your family. And you know, that, that works both ways too. With the exception, you always have to throw this exception out because of the crazy like Menendez brothers who murdered their parents. But with rare exception, most teenagers, even though they say they hate you, even though they say they don't want to be around you, most teenagers would gladly step in and defend their parents against harm. That's just the way it works. It's family. If you have a sibling, okay, You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly this. At one point in time, you've gotten so mad at them that you have seriously considered, you know what, 20 years to life would be better than him taking another breath. It's your brother. It's your sister. That's just the way it works. It's family. But you know, as well as I do, that you would defend them to the death if somebody wanted to do them harm. And we've got laughter and snick because you know it's true. Isn't that one of the most... Amazing ironies of life, <laughs> family. Like, I want to kill you, but I'm not going to let them kill you because I want to. I mean, like, how does, how does that work? Well, today we're going to see Jesus redefine family in a most amazing and beautiful way. We've got to remember the scene. And if you're new with us, we are walking through the book of Mark. And we must apologize for our screen here. Our, our, our projector became Yankee fans all overnight, apparently. And so we're pinstripes here. I don't, we don't have any idea why, but that's all right. Uh, 
So this enormous crowd has been following Jesus. We don't know the motive of the crowd. We don't know if they're truly interested in what Jesus is teaching. We don't know if they really want to hang on every word of of how grace has come and salvation has come for sinners. Or if their motivation is just they just want to see Jesus do some crazy miracles and and they they, they want to see him continue to, to battle back and forth with the religious crowd. We don't know if they're coming for entertainment or if they're coming for true delight in the message that Jesus has offered. Regardless, whatever their motive was, many, so many of them are following that the disciples and Jesus aren't even able to eat. We read that earlier in chapter 3. In fact, the crowd was so big that Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you need to get a boat ready because they're going to crush us if we don't have a means to get away from them. So we're talking a mass amount of people. Now, could you imagine Jesus' family during this time period? His family, who, who, who is you know, either in the same area, or maybe they're over in Nazareth, and, and, and they are certainly concerned about Jesus. But I don't know, like with the crowd, I don't know if their concern was truly about the well-being of Jesus, if he was okay, if he was safe, or if their concern was about their own reputation in the community. We do know a couple verses earlier that Jesus' closest family came to him. I think this is verse 21. Came to him and said, Jesus, you're crazy. you, You have lost your mind. And in fact, the Pharisees follow up with that with this idea that, okay, maybe Jesus is possessed by the devil. That's what we talked about last week in our text. And this week, Jesus' family comes back around to try to intervene. So we don't know what their motive is, but what Jesus takes the opportunity to do when they're trying to intervene into Jesus' life and into his ministry, Jesus takes this opportunity to teach a truth about the gospel that is so radical, that is so amazing, that, listen, if you can see this, it will change your life, okay? What he's about to teach, if, if you could see this with your mind's eye, if you could perceive this, if, if we could really dig this deep and meditate on this and let this really uh, fester deep within our soul, man, it, this will change our life. It will transform you from thinking that you better do this and you better do that in order to please a, a distant God, because if you don't, then he's going to zap you, he's going to hurt you, or, or worst of all, he's even going to leave you. It'll transform that thinking to realizing that if you believe in him, God has removed from you each and every single thing that could ever stand between you and him. If you see this, if you grow in this truth, you will be seeing, listen, grace at work. And if we begin, and as we begin seeing grace at work, man, it changes our lives from the inside out. You'll become more obedient, more committed, more devoted to Jesus than any fear-based, law-driven system could ever produce. And this is radical. So what is it? What's this amazing truth that Jesus is going to teach? Very quickly, it is the fact that the second birth defines family in the kingdom of God. So let's just jump in right here and see what Jesus is teaching. So this is the scenario. Jesus, this is starting in verse 31 of Mark, that should say, that is incorrect, Mark 3, sorry, 21 through uh, 35, so sorry about that. Mark 3. Uh, starting verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called for him. So 
they're trying to intervene. Jesus' mother and his brothers are trying to intervene in some way. Again, we don't know the motive. We don't know if it's pure motive or, or not. But we need to draw our attention to very specific details that Mark includes. He says that they are standing outside and they're calling. But this, is, this is a specific detail that means a whole lot. His mother and his brothers are not in the presence of Jesus. They apparently haven't been following him nor his teaching. This crowd that is following him doesn't even contain the people who know him the best, the ones who have known him since his own birth. The very one who birthed him, who had angels appear to her to say, hey, this is what's happening. She's not even in this crowd following Jesus. And the narration goes on in verse 32. It says, a crowd, so get this image. Jesus' mother and brothers are on the outside standing, calling for Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they relay the message. They say to him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And there is irony all over this. I hope you can see it. And if you don't, we're going to pull some of this out. But Jesus' family, theoretically the ones that know him best and are closest to him, are on the outside standing and calling for Jesus. While, look at this, complete strangers are crowded around Jesus, sitting at his feet, listening, hanging on his words. These strangers, this crowd, are the ones that relay the message to Jesus. Jesus' own mother and brothers had to send a message to their brother and to their son. They couldn't even get in to talk with him. It seems kind of strange. I mean, if, if, if I would want to think that if my popularity grew and, uh, to, to some point where there's this huge crowd around me, I would want to think that there would always be room for my mom to come and talk to me. Wouldn't you think that for your own life? And so this doesn't seem to be the case, though, with Jesus here. His own mother and brothers are on the outside. Now, of course, it's his half-brothers, right? Same mom, different dad, okay? But they're standing on the outside calling for Jesus while Jesus' followers are on the inside sitting at his feet, listening to him. And so verse 33 goes on to say, And he, he being Jesus, answered them, saying, who are my mother and my brothers? What a crazy question that Jesus poses here. Jesus doesn't even answer his family directly. He doesn't say, oh, my mom's out there. Okay, let me go out and talk to my mom. He addresses the crowd. Whoever it was in the crowd that relayed the message, Jesus answers them, and I guess they then you know, relay the message back out to Jesus' family. But Jesus doesn't even answer his family. And this question, who are my mothers and my brothers? Man, had Jesus' popularity puffed his head to the point where he had forgotten his roots, right? This is, this is strange. Had, had Jesus' ego swollen to the point where his, 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 uh, he didn't even recognize his own mom, his own brothers whom he grew up with? Or maybe Jesus had just uh, his status as being a miracle-working Pharisee dissing, crowd following, withered arm stretching, paralytic healing rabbi had gone straight to his head and he was now too good for his own blood family. Is that what's 
happening here? I mean, who are my mother and my brother? I couldn't imagine saying that to my mom, to my dad. What is happening? Jesus isn't dissing his family. He's not ridiculing his family. Jesus is remembering his roots. Jesus came for a mission. He came for a mission, and he had never been more in tune with this mission than he is right now with this statement. You see, Jesus wasn't being mean to his mom and to his half-brothers. He was about to reveal something. He was about to do something that would rock the world, a truth that continues to rock the world. And as I said it at the beginning, if we grab this, if we understand this, man, it will change our life. So let's see what Jesus says after this. And looking around in verse 34, at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus points to these people around him. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Matthew clearly identifies who he's pointing to. Matthew's gospel says, and stretching out his hand towards his disciples, these men that Jesus had just called, he points to them and says, here are my mother and my brothers. These are the ones whom Jesus had called to be with him earlier in chapter 3. These are the ones who are now following Jesus and intimately spending time with Jesus. These are the ones who Jesus is going to commission to go out and preach and to go out and have authority in his name. But are these his mother and his brothers? I thought these were complete strangers, right? I thought Jesus was at the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and he walks up to a stranger fisherman and says, hey, come follow me. I thought Jesus was walking through Capernaum and he comes up to a tax collector booth and this guy was cheating people out of their money and he says, hey, you, Levi, come follow me. Now, if you look in the list earlier in chapter 3 of all the disciples that he's pointing to here, not a single one of them is named Mary. So what is Jesus saying? What is he doing? What is he introducing? Again, he's introducing one of the most beautiful elements of the gospel. The fact that perfect strangers are united together as family. Now, I say perfect strangers, but the reality is one of the two are perfect strangers. The other being God, is not. He knows all and is in all and is glorified by all. So here's the deal. Jesus is introducing a reality and a definition of family that was never thought of, never understood before his time on earth. We, we use the words like, you know, family of God, children of God, brothers in Christ, all that kind of stuff. When I talk to Maurice, he won't let me call him Mr. Maurice. He says, I'm your brother. And I love that. Because we are brothers in Christ. But that term, that idea, that mentality, that didn't, that didn't exist before Jesus. It didn't exist before the gospel. It didn't exist before grace had come. Remember, Jews had operated as fearful subjects of a holy and righteous God. Not until God's righteous wrath was satisfied on the cross did people experience this familial connection with God and with Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't being mean to his brothers and to his mother he was introducing the beautiful reality of this new family that's being established by God's grace. This new family that Jesus is talking about isn't based on biology. It's based on adoption. You say, what do you, what do you mean adoption? Now, if you've been in church for a while, this is a term that you probably have heard, right? Adoption, being adopted in God's family. But, but if you're not familiar with church and you haven't done this thing for long, no one is naturally born into God's family. 
at our natural birth, which my birthday is August, 20, uh, August 1st. Where did 20 come from? August 1st. You know, my mind's going crazy. August 1st. At August 1st, I'll be 33 years old this year. And so 33 years ago, this August 1st, when I was born, I was not born naturally into the family of God. I was born naturally into the family of humanity and to my parents as a Davis, but I was not born naturally into God's family. But you might think, and I hope you do, you might say, well, well, wait a minute, I thought we were all children of God. I thought everyone, everyone on the world were children of God. Well, let's think that through. We certainly are God's creation, okay? Every single thing that exists was created by God and for God. Okay, so if you think of the idea of children simply in the context of creation, then yeah, we are all God's creation. But a child is much more than just creation. I would gladly throw everything and anything my hands have ever created into a brush fire, and and I would gladly watch it burn if it meant that my children were safe. Okay, there's a difference between creation and children. We are born as creation of God, but none of us are born naturally as children of God. And I want to make sure I said that correctly. We are all born as creation of God. Did I say that right the first time? Okay, well, I'll just say it again for somebody's benefit. But none of us are born naturally as children of God. A child has rights, right? A child has an inheritance. A child has a relationship with his parents. And in order to become a child of God, where we thus become a part of God's family, we must be born again. This is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. He says, except a man be born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus is talking about kingdom of God, he's talking about the family of God, this thing of God. We must be born again. And the guy he's talking to, he says, well, wait a second, Jesus. Do you mean that I need to crawl back up into my mother's womb and come back out? Like, how is that going to work? Like, my mom is old and I'm big. Like, that's, that's kind of weird. And Jesus says, no, you've got you to you walk with me here. This is a new birth. This is a spiritual birth. This is being adopted into the family of God. You know, we, we use a lot of, and the Bible uses a lot of words to describe uh, what happens when somebody becomes a child of God. We use words like, the Bible uses words like being saved. There's words like being converted or being regenerated, being born again, being delivered, being made alive. That's in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, being set free. There's all kinds of words I use synonymously to talk about this act of being born into the family of God. But one term that Scripture uses over and over to emphasize the very thing that Jesus is talking about here is this term adoption. So over and over, (laughs) Scripture uses this term adoption adoption to talk about the familial representation of what happens when somebody is born again. Now, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do something a little different right now. Um, In order to help us better understand how God adopts us into his family, I've asked Karen and Rob if they would come and kind of share with us a little bit about how they adopted their son, Ben. This is Karen and Rob, and they uh, live in Waynesboro, and they ha- well on the other side of Waynesboro, but they've been with us for a couple of months now, and um, it's very cool. They're in our community group. It's very cool just to get to know them and, and what God is doing. But if you could just share for a minute or two, what were some of the circumstances surrounding the adoption of Ben? Well, 
Well, I have to tell you that the difference between uh, Walt's family and my family is he probably had a, a fun-loving grandpa or whatever. Uh, I actually had a sister that wanted to kill me. So. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and that's just a small part of this story. We got a phone call uh, eight years ago. It was March 20th, a Sunday night, uh, from one of my other sisters. Pray for me. I've got five sisters. <laughs> I was, uh, But anyway, um, my sister had called me, and I often wonder why she called me that night. And I think it's because she knew I would actually do something. But uh, she called me and let me know my niece and her husband had just gotten busted that afternoon for uh, manufacturing of meth, methamphetamine. Um, they had a um, 20-month-old, 22-month-old, Ben, who we loved dearly and had taken care of a, uh, in our home from time to time. And, he, uh, and she wanted to know what, what we were going to do. And I'm thinking, what we're going to do? And I said, well, we lived in a, we lived in a small town. And, uh, you know, the good thing about being in a small town, you know a lot of people. And I said, well, I'll get on the phone to the sheriff and find out where Ben is. Because, you know, if Ben had been in that home, the state of Tennessee would have taken possession of him. They would have placed him in uh, foster care, you know, who knows. And um, actually had a dear friend that was an attorney, thankfully for us, called her, and she made calls, and, and I made calls. And we figured out Ben was uh, with his uh, father's brother. And so we developed a strategy that night and the next day to uh, uh, petition the court for um, emergency custody to... Uh, to get Ben and bring him into our home and, and care for him. So what ultimately, um, through all that situation and, and as you uh, were, were, were trying to figure out what to do and where to go and, and what to say and to your family, what ultimately prompted you guys to act as uh, and, and adopt him into your family? He needed us. Uh, we loved him. And there's a lot of there's a lot to this story that can't be told now because we just don't have time. But uh, he truly, God sent him. I don't know if God sent him to us or I don't know how that worked. But anyway, he needed us and, and we loved him and something had to be done. Amen. Do you, now, now we know... Um, that, that it took several years to, for the adoption to become finalized. Um, do you now that Ben is fully adopted, son of yours, do you view Ben any differently than you view your other two children? They have a grown son and a grown daughter. Well, actually, no. Um, and it took more than a couple years. <laughs> it took six years to finally get him adopted. Um, the day that we, that we actually went through the ceremony of adoption, um, the judge had said to us, um, do you choose to have Ben in your family and to make him part of your, your family as if he had been born to you? And of course that answer was yes. 
um, it touched me very deeply because when Ben was roughly around four or five years of age, um, he had asked me um, while I was driving down the road, which is not really good, when a child says, hey, Mom, who had me before you and Dad? And, um, of course, I played stupid. It's like, what are you talking about who had you before Mom and Dad? And I just wanted to make sure he knew what, I, what he was saying. Uh, because I had been praying a lot about how to explain to him that he's adopted. You know, read books, tell him, read books that say don't tell him, read books, you know, you just don't know. And so I've been praying. And um, he kept saying, you know, who had me first? And then finally his words were, who born me? And so um, we had that conversation of who born him and why he was with mommy and daddy wives with us and anyone to know well who born Matt Matt and that's our oldest son and I said well mommy did and he says well who born sissy and I said well mommy did and um, you could see his little face his countenance fell and it just broke my heart and I said but oh Ben I said mommy forgets I love you just as if you were born to me and so the day that the judge said that you know do you want Ben in your family just as if he were born to you. So he is indeed our son with by all means of the word. You had talked about the legal proceedings with the judge. Um, so in the eye of the court, in the eye of the law, is legally, is Ben now just as much of a Lewis as your other two children? Not just to you, but to the law. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's no difference. So assuming that you guys have assets when you guys, you know, pass off the earth, will, will, uh, will those assets be passed on equal, or I'll say equally, but as much to Ben, as, he has as much right to them as the other children? All right. We will equally leave them nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, I really hope, I really hope, that that's a great way to end. I really hope that you got, that we all are seeing What's happening here? By God's adoption of us, we become members of God's family. We become children of God. Just as in the adoption of Ben by Karen and Robert, there is, in our adoption by God, there is a parent, there is a judge, there is a a payment to be made, and, and there is a legal status when God adopts us. In our adoption by God, God is adoption of us. There is a parent. The parent is God himself, God the Father. In their adoption, they, of course, were the parents. But when God adopts us, God's not only the parent, but he's also the judge, just like they had a judge ruling over their case. God also acts as the judge to make sure that the full payment, the full rights of of, of us as his children are given to us by the parent. But in, as I just said, in our adoption with God, by God, there is also a price. If you were to go out and to adopt somebody, there is a price that is, that is paid, not just a price to the adoption agency or to the court, but there's the price of continuing to feed that mouth you know, forever and ever and ever and ever, especially if they get into their 30s and they're still living at home. But, but there is a price to be paid. And in our adoption by God, guess who pays that price? God again. As God the Son, Jesus hung on the cross taking on himself every single last sin of those who would be adopted into God's family. And that sin was carried far away, eternally away, as Jesus was buried into the grave. 
But there's also this new legal status. And who is it that assures this new legal status is firm and forever in our adoption by God? Well, it's God again. God the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit seals us with his seal, which means that we are legally sealed and identified as adopted children of God. And that which God has brought together, that which God has adopted into his family, in order for that adoption to fail, God would have to fail. Because we, just like Ben, are equal inheritors to God's family, to God's kingdom, as God's own son. Now that just, that just, if that's, if it, that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy that God's grace and his love would be shown towards us. So as Ben was adopted by Karen and Bill through this legal process uh, two or so years ago, almost two years, right? Um, yeah, almost two years ago. For us, and this is our journey marker today, the second birth defines family in the kingdom of God. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome that God plays the role of father, he plays the role of judge, he plays the role of the price payer, and he plays the role of the legal status sealing this forever and ever. So family in the kingdom of God isn't defined by biological relations. Okay, If your mom or your dad was a believer, that doesn't make you a believer. It's not by biological closeness to God. Family isn't defined in the kingdom of God as having an interest or, or, or being, being uh, you know, interested in the things of God or the claims of Christ. But family is defined in the kingdom of God by our new birth. That is, by God adopting us into his family. So how does someone become an adopted son, an adopted daughter of God? Well, listen, there are books upon books upon books that have been written about how this happens. But with our few minutes remaining, let's just look at the text. Okay, And actually, if you could go back to the text um, that's up on the screen the text that what Jesus says, and whenever you're reading Scripture, whenever you come to the word for, F-O-R, that is usually explaining something that was just said. So Jesus says, hey, these are my f- mother and brothers. For, okay, we need to pay attention because he's about to explain how these men who are strangers are now his mother and brother, how they are family. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my mother. My brother, my sister. So whoever does the will of God. Well, now we've got another question. What's the will of God? And this is a question that if we don't understand rightfully, can become absolutely debilitating to us. Many of people who come away from this question of what is the will of God, they're looking for a specific answer to their specific life. And they've turned away with this idea of, well, what's the will of God for my life? And then to make matters worse, We tailspin into despair with the idea that if we don't make the exact right decision at every single fork in the road of life, then we are going to depart from the specific will of God for my life. And so the result of this thinking is very debilitating. We become fearful so that we, we think we, we're going to make the wrong choice. And we, where am I going to go to college? Well, if I, if I make the wrong choice, it's not a part of God's will, then I'm going to be outside of God's will for the rest of my life. And then we get to big decisions like, like career. We get to big decisions like marriage and, and when to get married and who to marry and all these kinds of big decisions. And we just become frozen because we're like, I don't want to not do the will of God for my life. But is Jesus saying only those who do the will of God that's specific to their life are going to be members of this specific family of God? 
No, that's, that's not what he's saying. So let's zoom out just a little bit and let's, let's, let's ponder this question of what is the will of God. Throughout the Bible, we know that the chief goal of God, the chief desire of God, his, his will, his desire is to be glorified, for him to be magnified. His desire is for his glory to spread across the globe, for people of every single tongue, every single tribe to exalt his name for who he is. That's why our vision statement, which was hanging there, says to spread the fame of God to our neighbors and to the nations. That's what we're here to do. So we know God's ultimate goal, his ultimate desire, his ultimate will is to be the intimate God of his people and to be with his people forever. That's what we read about in the end of of Revelation. In fact, that's what we read about in Genesis. When he creates the garden, he creates Adam and Eve. He says, hey, take this garden, do this around the globe. I want my glory to be present around the globe, be fruitful, multiply. But Adam and Eve and humanity, we sinned. And Jesus came to reenact that which God had commissioned them to do in the first place. And we see it happening by the time of the end of time, where all nations are represented worshiping the glory of God. So the will of God is really simple in this context. It's to bring to himself people for his own glory, for God to adopt people. The will of God, Jesus really makes it simple back in chapter 1 of Mark. In chapter 1, verse 15, the very first words Jesus it recorded of Jesus in the book of Mark, the words that set the tone for the entire book. We talked about these months ago, these words. Jesus says, hey, the time has come. God is drawing a family together. He's drawing his people together. The kingdom is now. And he says this, repent and believe the gospel. So what is it that we do to be a part of this family of God, this kingdom of God? Jesus makes it pretty simple. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Well, that then answers, asks more questions. Like, what does repent mean? What does believe the gospel mean? Well, the idea quickly of repent simply means to turn to change your mind, to change your mind about what you think will get you in with God, to change your mind about placing your hope and your trust in yourself or in things around you, in your surroundings, to change your mind from those things and to believe the beauty of the gospel. Jesus says that the gospel, and we read in the New Testament that the gospel is the fact that Jesus has come to take on himself every single sin of every single person who would ever believe in him. And that sin was totally removed at the point of the cross. And so that when we repent, when we change our mind from believing in ourselves to believing in what we have to offer and believing in our self-reliance to then trusting in the sufficiency of Christ that only he can save me, only he can give me a real relationship with God, at that moment, that is evidence of this adoption process taking place. So those who repent, those who believe the gospel, those are the members of God's family. Those are the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. So when Jesus says, those who do the will of the Father, those are my brothers, mothers, and sisters, he's saying those who repent, those who believe. And so putting these two words together, repent and believe, we turn from ourselves, we change our mind that we have all the answers, that we have all the solutions, and we believe in the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of this message that Jesus has taken our sin away. Our musicians, or Craig's going to come and start leading us in a time of, of music, and in a minute, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus commands us to do this thing of the Lord's Supper regularly. He commands us to do it out of love and out of joy because we must be consistently, constantly reminded of the price He paid for us to become members of the family of God. If you're a believer here today, here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that you would see the completed work of Christ, that you would see it, that it has secured your adoption in God's family, that you are His based on His declaration, not based on your performance. Ben, he doesn't have to perform well, perform perfectly in order to stay a Lewis. He's a Lewis regardless. The same as you is, is with you and me. We don't have to perform a certain way in order to stay children of God. Once we are his children, we will always be his children. But the more we understand what God has done for us, the more we understand what he has done in us, the more we will live as if we are children of God. So as you take the bread and you take the cup, I want you to remember that Jesus gave his life, his flesh, his blood. He gave it for you. It was the price that must be paid for you to be adopted into God's family. If you're a believer, you have been adopted. And that's reason to worship. It's time for us to live driven by that adoption, driven by that grace, driven by the fact that He, when I was still a a sinner, He died for me. The fact that He knew no sin, He committed no wrong, but yet He became my sin so that I could then become His righteousness. And that's that's amazing. That's reason to worship. And so the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to be reminded of who we are in Christ to worship. And I'm telling you, if we could see that, if we could see the reality of who we are, that we legally are no longer who we once were, but we are now by faith and His grace and our faith, we are now adopted sons of God. When God looks at us, He looks at us and sees no different righteousness than the very righteousness of Christ. And if we could see that, if we could really believe that, it'll change our lives. It'll change our motives. It'll change our obedience. We'll become more in love with God than ever before. Rules can change behavior, but rules can never transform our minds. That's what grace does. But if you're not a believer today, if your mind hasn't been changed to the beauty of the cross, if your mind hasn't been changed and you don't embrace the beauty of Jesus, man, can I beg you? Can I beg you this morning to consider what Jesus did for you? On the cross, Jesus' own blood was poured out. The full wrath and fury of God was dumped on Jesus for each and every sin that was placed on Jesus. He died. He was buried, taking that sin far away. And he rose victoriously so that you may have life. And I beg you to repent. Change your mind. You don't have the solutions. You don't have the answers. You say, well, I'm a self-made man. Well, listen, only by the grace of God do you even draw breath. Can I beg you to change your mind and believe in the gospel? Stop believing in yourself and believe in the gospel. Stop believing in our society and believe in Jesus. Richard and I will be standing up here 
If you have any questions about the gospel, if you have any questions about what it means to be adopted into God's family, I, I beg you to come and ask us. We'll just be standing up here. There's no dumb questions. No dumb questions at all. But if your question is, what must I do to be a part of this family? What must I do to be saved? The answer is repent and believe the gospel. Change your mind and embrace the beauty of what Jesus has done. So I'm going to pray over us. And as I say amen, if you're a believer, if you want to just stay in your seat and just worship and thank God for what he's done, and I just, we want to, we want to give you time for reflection, some time for thinking on this beautiful thing of what God has done for you and adopting you into his family. And when you're ready, if you want to come and grab some bread and a, and a cup, you could take it back to your seat. You could go find a corner in the, in the building somewhere with, with a friend or with a family. And if you want to pray or you want to just come back to your seat, just, however you want to make that happen, we want to give you time to reflect on the beauty of God's adoption of you as sons and daughters of his. So I'm going to pray, and you can do that as you so desire. In a minute, we're going to close everything out with a fourth worship song, just simply entitled Awakening. And that's, that's the beauty of what God has done. He has awoken us by his power and by his grace. And we pray that God would continue to do that here in Crozet and around the world. Father, I just pray for your spirit that I believe is present in this place this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would go forward as I know he already has. And that, Father, he would bring a realization in our hearts and our lives of our desperate need for you. That without you, we are hopeless. We are helpless. But God, with you, we are more than conquerors. We are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. God, I pray that that would just, we would just ooze and worship. That our lives would, would respond to this truth with adoration. And that, Father, that we would fall in love with you deeper and deeper and deeper every day as your Spirit continues to renew our mind by your grace. God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't trust you, God, I pray that this morning they would consider the cross, that God, that you would save their soul and they'd be adopted into your family. I pray for courage, that anyone who might have a question, that they'd come and they'd ask so we could help answer as we know. God, as we take this Lord's Supper, God, may it not be just a ritualistic thing we do, God, may it have value and meaning where we remember what you've done for us, for your glory. In Jesus' name.